Welcome into the 4 o'clock show on your Friday afternoon. It is Brett with you. As a heads up, today's show is pre-recorded, but we do have a couple of interviews coming up on the program today. We're going to be speaking with Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown as we're going to be taking a deep dive look at politics in northern Minnesota and the path the DFL might have to take in terms of trying to retake control of the state Senate. That'll be coming up in the second half of the show. Happy to be joined now by D.D. Guttenplan. He is with The Nation magazine. He is currently their editor. And he recently wrote a piece titled, Oh No, Jeremy Corbyn. As we're going to talk about the recent British elections and also briefly touch on whether they could give us some clues as to what will happen here in the States in 2020. So, Don, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me on, Brett. So, well, let's start with a basic overarching question. Were the historic labor losses that they experienced, which were the biggest ones they've had in, well, quite some time since, I think, the Great Depression era, were their losses more the result of them actually losing the election or the Tories running a great campaign? Well, I wouldn't say it was a great campaign because it was an evil campaign, but it was a very successful campaign. I mean, you know, would you say that Donald Trump ran a great campaign? No, but it managed to get him the White House. Uh, So a couple of things to say. First is that this was the election that Boris Johnson, who's the tousle-haired leader of the Tories, which is what we call the British Conservative Party, this is the election that he really wanted because he inherited uh, a government from Theresa May. Remember, he had never faced the voters before. He was elected. He was selected leader of the Conservative Party by the Conservative Party, which is a tiny electorate of 70,000 or so, when Theresa May resigned. And so when he took over, he had a parliamentary majority of one, which he soon lost. Uh, and part of, part of that was because the Tory party, like the Labour Party, were divided over Brexit. Um, but Johnson was not divided. He knew what, exactly what he wanted, which was to take, the, uh, to take Great Britain out of the European Union. And so he purged the Tory party of members of parliament who wouldn't sign up to that program. Uh, some of them joined the Lib Dems. Some of them uh, became independents. Most of them just, just decided they weren't going to run again. Uh, and then he wanted, a, he wanted an election which was about Brexit. And the thing is that uh, the Labour Party was also divided over Brexit, and Jeremy Corbyn really didn't want to have an election about Brexit. He wanted to have an election that was about what's going to happen with the National Health Service, or what are we going to do about the lack of affordable housing, or you know, uh, how are we going to rebuild the nation's infrastructure, or what are we going to do to make sure that people have jobs somewhere other than London. And he couldn't have that election because the Social Democratic Party, the SDP, agreed to an early election. And once they'd agreed to an early election, there were enough votes in in Parliament to have an early election. And that meant it was going to be the Brexit election, which Johnson always wanted. And Johnson's slogan in this election, Get Brexit Done, was a brilliant slogan, because it not only allowed the Tories to hoover up all of the people and it wasn't, remember, Brexit was passed very narrowly. It was something like 52% of uh, the voters in the referendum wanted to leave the European Union. And of that 52%, probably only two-thirds or so felt really strongly about it. But the ones who felt strongly about it felt really strongly about it. And so get Brexit done allowed them to 
hoover up all of those voters, or vacuum up, as we say in America. Sorry, I lived in Britain for 25 years, so sometimes <laughs> it, it slips. Um, and many of those voters were labor voters from the north of England in what had been labor strongholds. So seats like Blythe Valley, which had never, ever elected a Tory before, or Sedgefield, which was Tony Blair's old constituency and which had been held by labor since 1935. Uh, and the other thing is that the, that slogan and that campaign of getting Brexit done also was very appealing to a very large swathe of voters who just wanted it to be over. You know, this is the, the, the uh, referendum was in 2015, and this has been going on since then. So uh, there are a lot of people in England who don't care that much whether Britain is part of the European Union or not part of the European Union, they would just like to get this out of their lives and off their political agendas. And it allowed the conservatives to, to um, appeal to them too. So that is true. However, it is also true. If you go what they call on the doorstep, meaning knocking doors and talking to voters, which is something that my 21-year-old son and his friends did for labor up until the day of the election, uh, what you find out is that a lot of former labor voters really didn't like Jeremy Corbyn. Now, they, they didn't like him for lots of reasons. In North London, where I used to live, um, there are a lot of Jewish voters like me who, even if we didn't believe, because I don't believe Corbyn is personally an anti-Semite, still thought that he handled charges of anti-Semitism in the party very badly and very clumsily. It took a very long time to throw people out of the party who really have no business in a progressive anti-racist party. Uh, so, you know, that, that hurt. But also, uh, in, in the north of England and in working class areas, the fact that Corbyn had always been someone who mainly concentrated on foreign policy and always from the left and always in support of the kind of internationalist left which, you know, from the point of view of The Nation magazine is a good thing, but it meant that there are lots of photos of him, for example, with the IRA in parts of the country where almost everybody has somebody who's been in the army and who's faced, you know, IRA guns as part of their army tour in Northern Ireland, say, for example. Or they would, or he was always, you know, he was happy to meet with all sorts of uh, despots in the Middle East. Um, and again, you know, that hurt him. So it was, able, it was easy for the media, which is always hostile to any labor leader in Britain. The press in, in Britain is overwhelmingly a Tory press. But Corbyn made it easy for them to paint him as an out-of-touch, metropolitan elitist and an extremist who hasn't a good word to say about Great Britain. Now, most of that is untrue, but there was enough grain of truth in there that it, it, it handicapped labor. So... I would say the Tories did run a very effective campaign, and Labour had a brilliant manifesto, but it was not believed by almost anybody who it was intended to convince. They just they didn't think that Jeremy Corbyn would be able to deliver it, and they didn't particularly like the messenger. And going back to what you're saying, this very clear message that the Tories had, which was get 
Brexit done. It was a very clear message because, as you brought up, a lot of people who were feeling very strongly about leaving Britain felt like they were largely being left behind, left behind by the larger economy in the EU, and that was a very clear message for them to pick up on versus what you kind of had with Jeremy Corbyn talking about, well, we're going to increase spending in the NHS and we're going to help other social programs. It's a little bit less tangible to actually look at than just simply saying, yes, we're going to get Brexit done. And a lot of times in politics, having a clear message is sometimes better than having a more effective message. Well, that's right. And, you know, to also to be fair to the Tories, I mean, their slogan was, you know, razor sharp focused getting Brexit done. But they did also promise to hire 40,000 new nurses and build 40 new hospitals and, uh, you know, and, and increase uh, doctors in the NHS. Now, probably they'll break those promises. Maybe they never meant them in the first place. But it meant that, that they were able to neutralize the kind of fear campaign that Labor was trying to run in response about, you know, the NHS isn't safe with the Tories. And so, you know, that's true, too, is that they, they were quite focused, but they also covered their left flank in a way. You know, they didn't, they didn't make an effort to appeal to progressive voters, but they did make an effort to calm the fears of voters who were concerned that something that they have, that they rely on, that they care about, would be destroyed or taken away from them. And of course, what's with happening with labor now is after these massive losses, there's pretty much a civil war going on. Well, there probably had been a civil war within the party going on even before the last election we saw with several politicians, I think, as you talked about, defecting to the liberal Democrats, who are the more centrist party. And now that labor ended up having these big losses under Jeremy Corbyn, is this almost in a way kind of a victory for the more centrists in a way that they can say, hey, maybe we should return to what the labor party was like in the 90s and 2000s when I believe it was a little bit more of a moderate type of party? Well, I would say it's, they would have obviously liked us to think that, but there's absolutely no evidence for it, and there's a lot of evidence against it. I mean, first of all, as in America, when you ask people on social issues what they what they care about and where they are on a political spectrum. Do you think that private, you know, pharmaceutical companies should be able to charge whatever they want for drugs? Do you think that your chance of getting your child seen by a doctor should depend on how much money you have or the state of your insurance coverage? Do you think that your child's chances of going to a decent school should depend on how much you paid for your house? You know, people people are are always much more progressive than the political options that our system seems to offer them. But I think it's also true and, and worth noticing that every single one of the labor MPs who left the party, either because they said that, Bor that uh, Jeremy Corbyn was an anti-Semite, which some of them did, or because they said he wasn't sufficiently centrist, which many of them did, or because they said that he wasn't sufficiently committed to remain, which happens to be true, he wasn't committed to remain, uh, none of them were reelected. So, you know, there, there is absolutely no evidence that centrism would be popular or a better strategy. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence that it wouldn't, but that never stops the centrists. I'm sure we're certainly going to hear that argument as we go forward with the Labor Party, but as you bring up, it's the same thing here in the States. Yeah, typically progressive policies always pull much better than conservative policies in that aspect. So let's talk about Boris Johnson now and keeping his majority, because as you brought up, I mean, of course he had support on on this whole idea of get Brexit done, but he did promise to actually have increases in terms of the NHS, which 
to some conservatives might not be a good thing who actually want to cut the NHS. So how does he kind of run that balancing act of keeping his promises to saying, hey, we're going to increase spending in the NHS while also warding off probably more of the right-wing members that say, hey, we should actually take this as an opportunity to have more neoliberal privatization. Yeah, Yeah, privatization, right. Well, I mean, I think that's, in a way, that's the interesting question about Britain for the next few months. I, I want to push back against something you said a little earlier, which is that there's a civil war in the Labor Party. I haven't seen any signs of that. I mean, there's okay. a debate in the Labor Party, and, mm-hmm. and that debate really needed to happen after 2015. And, and what happened instead was that Jeremy Corbyn was selected leader when nobody expected him to be, and it kind of cut short that debate. So the debate about what a Labor Party is for in the 21st century, because the Labor Party, after all, was founded out of the labor movement, which was the movement of industrial workers, you know, manufacturing workers. Now that there are very few of those in Britain and those jobs are not going to be coming back, there's still a working class, but what is the relationship of the Labor Party to the working class? And what does it mean if you're representing people who are in call centers or home care attendants or, you know, work in hospitals or uh, work for the local council? What, is that, what does that mean? What is that, how does that change your approach to economics and the social contract? And those are really important questions which never really got debated before, so they need to be debated. Uh, as for um, how Boris Johnson is going to hold it together, well, it's really interesting. I mean, Brexit essentially allowed him to pick labor's pockets, to take all of these seats, what they call the Red Wall, which had been northern seats that had been labor for generations, where they'd never, where they used to say, you know, you could elect a, a, a donkey in the Labor Party before you could elect a Tory. Uh, and suddenly they've all gone Tory because of Brexit. So can Boris Johnson hold on to them? Well, he won't hold on to them if he, if he moves right. He won't hold on to them if he governs from the right. And if he does hold on to them, that would be a a huge realignment of British politics. In other words, if the Tory party, instead of being the the party of uh, property owners around the country and factory owners and people who live on uh, the financial industries, becomes a party of the rich, yes, but also of uh, urban workers, uh, because the Labour Party doesn't have anything to offer or urban workers. And if Boris Johnson can offer a kind of a uh, social safety net that people feel that they can count on and that isn't going to be pulled away from them, and on the other hand, a kind of nationalism uh, that was behind the Brexit campaign, he may well hold on to those, generation, those workers for a generation, and I think that would be catastrophic for Britain. So I think the Labour Party project has to be to get those people back has to be to, to, to re-workerize the party and bring in uh, a, a set of policies that will appeal to workers. And, and I think there's every chance of doing that now that the one wedge issue for the working class, which was Brexit, has been put to bed. I mean, it hasn't been put to bed the way I wanted it to go, but now that it's off the table, we can concentrate on other things and, and other kinds of politics. And that was part one of our conversation with D.D. Guttenplan of The Nation magazine. Coming up on the other side of the break in part two, we're going to discuss whether what we saw happen in the British elections last week could have any impacts and possibly foreshadow what could happen here in the States in 2020. We're 
listening to AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Let's get back to my conversation now with Dee Dee Guttenplan of The Nation magazine as we still have a couple more topics to cover regarding what happened in the British elections last week and also how they could impact what could happen in the United States in 2020. We're speaking with D.D. Guttenplan of The Nation magazine. He is currently their editor and has spent many years living in Britain as we're talking about the British elections. And one of the things, Don, that's probably going to come out of these recent elections that saw the Tories have a lot of success is a possible trade deal between the United States and Great Britain. What are we expecting to see out of a possible trade deal negotiated by Boris Johnson and Donald Trump? Because if I'm sitting there in Britain as a progressive, uh, that doesn't seem like a very good... Very good prospective deal that could be coming through. It seems like a lot of privatization could be on the way. Well, I think it's going to be really fun to watch. I mean, it would be particularly fun to watch if you don't have to live in Britain because uh, it's not going to do anything dangerous for the U.S. You know, the U.S. This is like a, you know, the U.S. is the far stronger partner in this negotiation, and Donald Trump isn't shy, has never been shy about leveraging, uh, you know, America's strength or being a bully in, in negotiations. On the other hand, Boris Johnson desperately wants a U.S. trade deal to show that the case he made for Brexit and how Britain would thrive out of, outside of Brexit and that other countries would be lining up to do a trade deal with Britain had some truth in it. Now, the thing is that Johnson is less attached to vindication or to proving things he said true than most politicians. In other words, He's perfectly happy to lie to you, have it suit him, and then get caught later and say, oh, yeah, you didn't really take that seriously. So I think, in a sense, it would be a mistake for Trump to underestimate, to overestimate how desperate Johnson is going to be for a trade deal. He wants one. He'd really like one. But if the U.S. basically says, well, you have to sell off the NHS to get a trade deal, Johnson knows that would be political suicide, and I doubt he'll do it. Similarly, if, if he says you have to change your agricultural rules so they don't align with Europe so that we can sell you a lot of, you know, rotting chlorinated chicken, which is what the, <laughs> what the opponents to a U.S. trade deal in Britain keep saying is, is going to be the case. I think Johnson would be foolish to say yes. And I think once Johnson uh, makes it clear that he's not going to have a trade deal on any terms, he's not going to accept one in any terms, and Trump makes clear what his bottom line is, they'll probably have a trade deal. It's, the thing is, it's... Britain and the U.S. are major trading partners already, so it suits both sides to allow that to continue as frictionlessly as possible. It doesn't really suit the British to completely change the way it's done. So although America would like to change the way it's done, America wants to be able to sell to Britain too. So I think the only thing that makes all these bilateral trade deals a bad idea is that you have to keep negotiating them all the time, and it's tremendously draining and of energy and time that you could spend on doing more useful things. But I, I don't think it's going to be a disaster for either country, frankly. One final topic to cover, and that's this narrative I've been hearing a lot from the corporate media here in the U.S., and that's the... The British election should serve as a warning sign to Democrats against nominating a progressive candidate and instead that we need to go with a more centrist candidate like Mike Bloomberg or even to a degree Joe Biden. Do you think there actually are any parallels to what happened in Britain to what could happen here in the U.S. or is that narrative completely off base saying that it should serve as a warning against nominating a progressive candidate for president? Well, I think, it should, I think what happened in Britain to the Labour Party certainly should serve as a warning to the Democrats and to the left, but not that kind of warning. I mean, look, 
when Brexit passed in 2015, uh, a good friend of mine who follows politics on both sides of the ocean said, you realize this means that Donald Trump could probably win. And I was like, well, why does it mean that? And, you know, there was a there was a case to be made that the left behind voters in both countries offered a chance to give the finger to the system in the case of the British referendum by voting for Brexit, where suddenly people who'd been told for decades that they didn't count, they didn't matter, they just had to suck it up and take it, now had a chance to actually change the course of the country's history, and they took it and they did it. And in America, you had a working class who had been uh, globalized into submission, basically, and who had been immiserated, but whom, whom, what did Hillary Clinton say in the campaign? We're going <laughs> to, to miners and factory workers, we're going to eliminate more of your jobs. So, you know, if you, if, you, if you foreclose any kind of populism on the left, then yes, there is always the possibility that, that voters will move to a populism of the right, as has happened in Britain, as happened with Trump, and has happened in many countries around the world. But the answer to that is not to, therefore, move to the center and even further shut down an authentic you know, appeal to grassroots and to people's day-to-day lives. I mean, I think the lesson for the, the, uh, for, for the Democrats about the collapse of the Labor Party is that if you stay in your own echo chamber and you come up with a platform that sounds great you know, in the kind of uh, university uh, cafeterias and faculty offices, but that doesn't actually give people anything to hold on to in their actual lives where jobs are being eliminated and they're under incredible pressure and more and more people are working precarious jobs at terrible hours. And you don't offer them any prospect of changing that or at least any prospect of changing that that they think they have any reason to believe you're going to actually do. Uh, then, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I, I think it's absolutely true that Trump could very easily be reelected. I think it's quite possible to imagine him be, being reelected. And I think, you know, just to take this back in a way to full circle, if you look at the turnout for the impeachment demonstrations and how low it is, how low it was, and you compare it to the amount of time that the left and the media have spent on impeachment, you, you see that, you know, there is a disconnect between the kind of mainstream political establishment and and most people who didn't feel that they needed to go out into the streets and demand Donald Trump's removal from office. Now, I would love Trump to be gone tomorrow, but I think the only way we're going to get that done is by coming up with a candidate who people believe will fight for them and fight for the things that they care about and a program that is about what people actually care about, not about symbolism or about signaling that, you know, you're more progressive than the next person. Yeah, and I think you 100% hit the nail on the head there because, yeah, you can certainly get rid of someone like Trump, but you actually do need an alternative that's going to help people out in their lives. And even going back to Boris Johnson and Donald Trump, even though their promises that they say they're going to do to help people probably end up won't helping, they at least do have a clear-cut promise saying this is how we're going to make your lives better versus Democrats and even to the Labor Party. That message is a little bit more muddled. So definitely kind of agree with you there if that's where you're going, where it's all about having a good message to voters to try to get them to support you. A good, clear, progressive message that voters can believe. I mean, I think, you know, what's really damaging the Democrats at the moment is that you have a message that people care a lot about, which is if if you allow about being made bankrupt because your kid gets sick. You will not have to worry about losing your house because, you know, somebody in your family breaks an arm or a leg. 
uh, you know, that the, that the government will step in and make sure that everybody has decent health care as a right. And then you get candidates like Biden and Buttigieg saying, well, no, we can't really deliver on that, and you shouldn't be talking about that, and that's not realistic. I mean, I think that's the, that makes what could be a very clear message and indeed a very pogged and fuzzy. So, you know, I, I look forward to the Democrats nominating somebody who can deliver that message with conviction and with clarity and hopefully in a way that people will believe that they mean it. We have been speaking with D.D. Guttenplan of The Nation magazine, where he's currently the editor, and he recently wrote a piece titled, Oh No, Jeremy Corbyn, talking about the British elections, as we've been talking about that and some other topics as well. Hey, Don, thanks so much for joining us on the program today. Appreciate it. Great to be with you, Brett. Thanks for having me on. And coming up next, we'll take things to a much more local level as we're going to be taking a deep dive look at northern Minnesota politics and how those races are shaping up in 2020. That'll be with Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown. But first, let's get to Artbeat for the week. AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Welcome back to the Minnesota Progressive Repartee here for your Friday afternoon. Well, as we head into the new year, we expect several competitive races that should decide control of the state legislature in both the House and the Senate. And one of the areas that's expected to get a lot of attention is Senate District 5, because a little background on that. Prior to 2016, its state senator was a DFLer, and then both of the DFL House reps were also DFLers. But that changed after 2016, when it was a Republican sweep. In 2018, it maybe reverted a little bit, as in District 5A, it did go back to the DFL. But here in 2020, we are expecting a very, very competitive race to determine control of the legislature and the Senate. And again, SD5 probably going to play a big role in that. So joining us to talk about those races, as well as others in northern Minnesota, is Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown. Hey, Aaron, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Brett. Absolutely. So let's talk about what happened in 2016, because you were actually the campaign manager for Representative Tom Anzel. And as you write about, you expected to have a competitive race and maybe even have a chance at possibly not winning. But ultimately, the result really surprised you just in terms of the margin that the Republicans won by. So what surprised you that so much back in 16 about that race? Well, we in 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 House Five B, we believed that um, Trump was doing well. We we were pretty certain that Trump would win the House uh, race in that district. Of course, he did, uh, but by a much bigger margin than we expected. Um, we thought that, for instance, Tom Anzels, my friend, that that he was positioned well, that he was uh, um, good on union issues, good on trade, good on some of the things that a lot of Trump voters were looking at. Uh, but what really what it, what that was and what that showed was there was a major cultural revolution that kind of happened in 2016 and nowhere was that more evident than than district 5 including Itasca, Beltrami counties, Cass County, uh, Hubbard County. These areas went went very conservative and, and particularly towards the Trump model of conservatism such as that is um, and and uh, it was it was a it was a washout in 5B, as you mentioned. John Purcell lost in 5A, uh, and and the big surprise though was at the state senate. Um, with, you know the the house races were considered to be on the radar for competitive races, but the senate race wasn't. Um, Senator Tom Saxog of the DFL in in District 5, he he was uh, favored. 
Um, it wasn't on anybody's spending list. There was a little bit of outside spending against Tom Saxog. But really, um, the opponent, the Republican opponent, Justin Eichhorn, who um, had been an unsuccessful candidate for the legislature previously, uh, kind of got swept in on the coattails of everything that happened there. And uh, by just a, a really close margin, he, he nipped out a win against Tom Saxog, and um, they're therefore completing the sweep of District 5. And that was kind of revolutionary. It, it wasn't expected. And um, in, in the last election, uh, John Purcell got back in on the 5A side, but 5B remained um, with the Republicans by a similar, a similar margin. So um, it, it just kind of sets us up for 2020, where... Um, you have a presidential race. Trump is potentially going to be on the ballot again, and um, and you've got uh, a lot of the same dynamics in play. But how will that hold up? Will the DFL have a chance to get that Senate seat back because it was so close, and Icorn might not have been the strongest candidate at the time, or um, is Trumpism so uh, deeply rooted here now that um, it won't be it won't be expelled easily? So we'll find that out. That's the big issue going into this election year. Yeah, and that really kind of becomes the question as well as I, I go through and look at that race, because obviously, as you would probably agree, all three of those races got very nationalized back in 2016. And the question is, well, was that just a one-time thing because they had Trump on the ballot, who was very popular in that district, or are future Republicans going to continue to have that sort of success? Did we really get many hints in 2018, or do you still think we're still kind of a little bit unknown, maybe even until Trump leaves office and we have another Republican on the ballot? Yeah, where does Trump begin and the Republican Party leave off? That's one of the big political science questions of our time, and I, I don't have a immediate answer. But I'd say right now, uh, uh, Trump and Trumpism, such as it is, whatever you want to call it, is is really what's on the ballot. And and a lot of people uh, in rural northern Minnesota identify with Trump in a in a, a profound way for for reasons that are, as I mentioned, kind of cultural. It has more to do with how they see the world and the threats in the world than, than, than any particular ideological policy, right? So that's the, that's the big thing. And, and that's only going to be more the case, you know, as you've observed from anyone who's been a human listening to the news, watching the news, reading the news over the past few years, knows that this hasn't abated at all. This is only continuing to intensify the partisan divide, the, um, and, and to some degree the culture war. And you even hear... I live in a red precinct in a red county in a red Senate district. And um, I love and know my neighbors and many of my family members who talk about this in terms of a culture war. People who supported Trump believe they were sounding a, a volley in this culture war against things they didn't like and changes in the world they didn't like and changes in the country they didn't like. And so... If if that remains to be how the world is seen, I don't see, like right now, anybody abandoning Trump. Whatever troubles he goes through, whatever he does or says, it, it's, rel it's less important than, than, the, than the message they believe is being sent by, by him being there. Uh, th and that's a very powerful, a really powerful um, political position for him to be in in these areas. And, and everybody else down ballot. Is kind of defined by how they relate to this dynamic. You know, are you for or against Trump? If you're for him, you know, are you for him to the end, no matter what? If you're against him, you know, what else do you have? What are you bringing to the voters who don't like Trump? 
who are you going to get to vote who might otherwise not vote or might cut out after the after the top races on the ballot? You know, a lot of people are going to walk into the ballot box and vote for president. They might vote for the federal offices, but you know, if they don't feel the need to continue, the you know, what's going to get people to really get engaged with supporting a ticket all the way down? Well, that's where Trump has some advantages in rural Minnesota. They're going to say, you know. If you're for Trump, I'm for you all the way down to city council. It was really interesting. You know, Bemidji's in this district, and uh, that's the 5A side. And in the, in the last uh, election, the mayor of Bemidji, Rita Albright, uh, who we'll talk about here in a moment, she ran a race for re-election against a candidate who was running on literally keep uh, make Bemidji great again. Um, and, and it was a, a Trumpian campaign for a local of office of a relatively small city in northern Minnesota. She won that race, but Bemidji's more of a progressive town somewhat than, than the area around Bemidji. And, and so now um, Rita Albright's one of the candidates for state Senate um, running against now Senator Justin Eichhorn. And, and the question is, how much, you know, how much do these state Senate and even the local races get nationalized, as you put it, uh, by, by this phenomenon, which is you know, say what you will about it. It's 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 unavoidable in in how people pr- approach the ballot box in in rural Minnesota. So let's talk about Rita and then the other candidate who is running on behalf of the DFL. I know there was a nominating contest to try to determine who is going to be. Yeah. The, yeah. Go ahead, Aaron. The, the other candidate is is Charles Dolson. Gotcha. And 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 Charles Dolson is a, a lawyer. Um, originally from the Red Lake uh, Reservation, and he he lives in Bemidji now and, and is an attorney and does some other work with the Red Lake Band in, of Ojibwe in, in northern Minnesota. So it's Charles Dolson and Rita Albright are the um, announced candidates for the DFL race in the Senate District against against Justin Eichhorn, the Republican. So I want to talk about this aspect as well, because I think this also kind of played a role besides Trump, too, and that's this idea that, well, the DFL only represents the metro areas of the state, because that's Mm -hmm. what we often hear from a lot of people who live outside the metro, at least when it comes to politics in those areas. That's what they try to brand a lot of the DFL candidates as. Do you think in that aspect, and then also, as you were talking about with Trump as well, DFLers kind of learned their lesson maybe in 2018 and started running better campaigns, trying to have better outreach to rural voters and not try to get themselves tied to being metro-only candidates, at least the way they're perceived. What are your thoughts on that? So part of the issue with rural Minnesota is the perception of where the political power comes from. And I've been studying Iron Range history, and of course the Iron Range is just barely a part of this 5th district. The, the far uh, eastern side is, is the western end of the Iron Range. But the, the reality in all of rural Minnesota is there's always been this political focus on the Twin Cities, and Twin Cities being other, and the rural areas being, being you know, us. If you live here, you see the outside. And for the longest time, that was these were DFL areas in part because they saw the power in the Twin Cities being Republican. And the Republicans in faraway places were, you know, doing things for wealthy uh, people who took care of themselves. And, and the DFL was looking out for the schools and the various institutions that, that we in rural Minnesota supported. You know, very little has changed in terms of the policies on taxes or education, in terms of where the parties are. There are a lot of cultural issues that have muddied the water 
gay marriage, um, abortion, things of that nature. But um, it's not that the, you know, what was coming out of the cities uh, changed all that much. It's just that the cities became bigger. The suburbs expanded. More people lived down there than ever before. And they're becoming more democratic in the educated suburbs and in the urban areas. It's becoming, you know, the base of the Democratic Party. Well, if, you, if the, the enemy of your enemy is your friend, uh, is, is generally a human nature thing. And when you're in rural Minnesota and you feel left out and you feel forgotten, um, and you see the, the challenges now coming from DFL lawmakers who have things you don't like, which, which might be cultural in nature instead of political or, or um, you know, tax policy-based, well, you still see that as the, the opposition, and, and you're going to support the opposite message, which, which is why the Republicans have enjoyed a steady increase in support in rural Minnesota, uh, even in northern Minnesota, which was once a DFL holdout in, in rural Minnesota. Um, you're seeing that now. And so it's a, it is a cultural battle in some ways. And, and after the last election, and you saw the DFL, you know, realize, okay, we really got our butts kicked in rural Minnesota. We're going to try to run some good candidates and run on some good policies for rural Minnesota. Listen, they did. They tried. Um, and, and, they, and they were often unsuccessful efforts, uh, despite having good candidates, despite having well-funded candidates. In a lot of these races they lost in rural Minnesota, um, you know, John Purcell got back in by four votes, mm-hmm. you know, four votes, not percentage points, but votes. And, and he's going to face a tough race for re-election, um, even though uh, they recruited a, a solid candidate in 5B, the race that I used to be involved in. Um, you know, he did no better. Um, he had, uh, there wasn't a Green Party candidate running, so he consolidated some support on the left. But basically, the uh, Republican incumbent, Sandy Lehman, she, she did just as well as she did two years prior. It, it's going to be really hard if people perceive, you know, it's their community versus the Twin Cities, they're going to vote for their community. And if the Republicans are owning that message that we're you and the DFL is they, then, then those messages are going to be very successful. Democrats, to counter this, rather than piping in like, well, we in the Twin Cities are going to help you rural people. It needs actually to come from within these rural communities to be successful. So Democrats in the communities have to rise up and present messages that show that, that the party has something to offer um, these rural places. And, and frankly, because the party had been in power so long in some of these rural places, the DFL party... You know, they weren't ready for this to happen. They got caught. And um, right now, these parties, local parties, are sorting themselves out. How do you get younger people involved? How do you get new people involved who haven't been doing it for a thousand years? This is challenging. And it's one of the reasons why, to date, Democrats haven't figured out a way to win these rural seats again. They may yet. Um, but, but frankly, it's going to be a major challenge, one that requires more attention than just election year spending. 
And that was just one half of our conversation with Aaron Brown of Minnesota Brown. We still have lots more to cover, including some other legislative races in northern Minnesota, as well as a look at the 8th Congressional District and whether the DFL is putting enough focus on that race. So we're going to be playing back the second half of my conversation with Aaron Brown next week on the program. So look for that. We'll wrap up the show coming up next. Welcome back to AM950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. Brett with you on a Friday afternoon for one final short segment and want to give you a heads up for what's happening next week. So on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day next week, we will have some best of programming airing during the four o'clock hour, but I will have new shows on the way for you next Monday and Friday. So listen for those and then possibly we'll have a special treat on the way for you on Thursday. So that's what's coming up next week on the four o'clock show. Then Matt McNeil is going to have some brand new to you content. They're pre-recorded shows, but you've never heard them before, as he's going to have some interviews with authors and some political figures on the way next week. So listen in for Matt's show as well. Happy holidays here from everyone at AM 950, and I'll talk to you next week. Like the